1 Samuel chapter 8, perhaps we'll read again verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us. They said, Nay. You know, God says often in his word, Obey me. Obey my voice. Deuteronomy 13 verse 4. Ye shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice. And the only person who did this perfectly and completely was our dear Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. Because he was made flesh, he was made under the law, and therefore he remained always obedient unto it all the days of his life. The Bible says, obedient unto death. That was our Lord. Bless his name. Unfortunately with us, it is not so. We are not always obeying God. And so I want to consider with you tonight the stubborn refusal of the people of God here that is described in verses 19 and following. This is disobedience. This is what even the church of Christ is capable of. Disobedience. Stubborn, willful, continuing disobedience. The verb that is dominant in verse 19 is the verb that in the original occurs as the first word. It is the verb refuse. It's the word that you have to highlight and underline. The people refuse. They simply refuse to obey the voice of Samuel. That describes a stubborn refusal, a stubborn resistance within them. It is an absolute refusal. There's no, well, we'll think about this, Samuel. We'll consider it. We'll weigh your words. We'll pray about it. No, it's an outright refusal. Nay, we will have a king. This is a a stubbornness that is very wicked and very grievous unto Samuel, no doubt, and unto the Lord. And we want to consider it tonight, I I think we have to pause over this. So let's reflect on this refusal of the people of God. There are two things. The stubbornness itself. And then secondly, there is the response to it. First of all, by Samuel, the man of God. And then by God himself. So those are our two heads. The the stubbornness and the response to it from others. While we look at this stubbornness and think about stubbornness in a general kind of way, I do want to state, first of all, we mustn't think that all stubbornness is wrong. There is, in fact, an inflexibility that is essential in God's people. There is a dogged stubbornness that every Christian ought to have on occasions and at times. A stubbornness that is commendable. There are times whenever God's people must refuse, must say no, and they must do so with urgency, without consideration, 
without compromise, without even spending any time about the matter, they ought to be dogged in the refusal of certain things. There are times when the people of God have to say no. No to the devil. No to the flesh. No to the world. There are times when God wants us to be adamant in our refusal. In fact, even God himself can be stubborn at times. And you see that in this book. For example, it has been hinted at even in this very chapter itself. Samuel has said to the people, You'll cry out in that day because of your king which you have chosen, and the Lord will not hear you. He'll refuse to hear you. That stubbornness in the Lord. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will refuse to hear me. God can refuse. You remember whenever they were going to anoint someone in the house of David, in the house of Jesse, and Eliab, he was uh, the son who looked the most fitting to be a king. And even Samuel was taken in by his appearances. Surely this is the Lord's anointed. And what did God say? Don't look on the countenance, Samuel. Don't look at his height. I have refused him. He maybe thought he was a man. The people thought he was a man. Jesse would have liked it. Samuel would have liked it. I've refused him. He's not to be the man. And we often think about Joseph too, don't we? His dogged determination not to give in to sin. He was in the house of his master. And she said, lay with me. But he refused. This very same word. But in a good, good setting. He refused to lay with her. And he says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So if it's great wickedness, we must refuse. If it's great iniquity, we must say no. We must be stubborn and not even to think about the matter to compromise. My son, if sinners entice thee, consent thou not. Be determined. No. No. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them, reject them, refuse them. And the greatest example that has been left by us is the, that example of our Lord, of whom I said he was obedient unto death, and he was so through all temptations that he faced. Even when he faced the devil in person, who commanded him to make the stones bread, turn them into bread, and he refused. And he says, cast yourself down from this pinnacle. And he refused. And he says, bow down before me and worship me. And there was a card always dangled in regard to these things. Because that's the way the devil works. He wants to make these things appealing and attractive to the flesh. So that it's easy to say yes and hard to say no. But it was never hard for the Lord to say no. Because there was no fallen nature in him. And so he refused. There are times when we must refuse. Clearly our Lord Jesus Christ is a pattern of stubbornness. 
that is commendable, that is blessed. A refusal to obey Satan or the wicked counsels of men are the voices within us that are contrary to God's word. The Bible's clear concerning Satan. Whom resist? Resist. Refuse. Oppose. And blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. And to be that kind of man requires stubbornness in this world. Paul says, refuse profane and old wives' fables. And then you remember Moses, no doubt will come to it as we enter into Hebrews 11 soon. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Imagine that. Would that have been such a bad thing? To be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter? I mean, that would have brought a big packet, wouldn't it? You could have helped the church with that big packet. But no. That's not the way the church is going to be built up. By compromise with the world. And getting on with the house of Pharaoh. He refused. So you see, there are refusals that are good. The people, however, here are not resisting Satan, sin, or self, or the world. They're resisting the voice of Samuel, the voice of the man of God. They're resisting that voice. And make no mistake what that means. It means the word of God. It means God's will, as has been set forth by the ministerial word of Samuel. What does it say there in verse 10? Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. The voice of Samuel. What is there about that voice of his? It's a voice that tells the whole counsel of God. He told all the words of the Lord. So they're resisting the voice of the Lord as it goes forth in the voice of a man. Because it's the man of God that brings the word of God. As we studied earlier in Samuel, Samuel grew, the Lord was with him, and the Lord didn't let any of his words fall to the ground. Well, what was special about his words that they didn't fall to the ground? like the words of other men, because his words were heavenly words. He was the prophet of the Lord. He has the word of God. And Samuel has just solemnly warned Israel, we saw that the last time, of the dangers of getting their own king and not waiting for the true king to come. Notice the nevertheless there. Nevertheless, the people refused. Nevertheless, even though he preached his heart out, nevertheless they refused. Even though he gave them the word of God, nevertheless they refused. Though he painted it ever so graphically, he went into their homes, he said what would happen to their sons, what would happen to their daughters, what would become of them. He painted it as awful as he could. Nevertheless, nevertheless they refused the voice it didn't matter. 
No matter about the word, no matter what he said, no matter how he said it, no matter how he labored to bring it to them, no matter how soft his heart was, no matter how gentle his voice, no matter how many his tears that he might have shed, no matter the grief that they saw in his heart as he emptied the burden of the Lord upon them, nevertheless, just as easy as that, nevertheless, refused they his voice. They refused to obey it. It's interesting how it says the voice of Samuel. Why does it not say they refused the word of the Lord? But the voice of Samuel. Because that's how they got around it, you see. Nobody thinks they're refusing the word of God. They just think they're refusing a minister. They just think they're refusing a man. They just think they're refusing a sermon. They just think they're refusing a voice. If it's just a voice you're refusing to obey, that's easier to deal with, isn't it? So this is, this is the kind of language that they're using. It's the voice that they refused. The voice of a man. It's not, it's not solid. It's just Samuel. It's just him again. You know what he's like. You know his high standards. It's just his voice. Uh, that's not a good way to get rid of the word of God. That's just him. That's just the minister. That's just his voice. It's easy to say nay. If you can talk like that in your mind about things you don't like to be told. And so that's how people get around a faithful ministry. Just the voice of the minister. That's all it is. With his wee notions. Notice how their insistence is emphasized. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, Nay. But we will, we will have a king over us. Despite what you say, Samuel, we will. I think there might even be a wee bit of spite in this. No. We will. We will have it. We will do it. We will go through with it. No matter what he says. There's almost a spite. An attitude. In the answer that they give. Now of course they have to give arguments to this. They want to appear like rational people. They want to appear like people that have thought the matter through. And they know better than Samuel. And that his voice is wrong in this matter. And so they, they do come up with arguments. There'll always be arguments to disobey God. There'll always be reasons. You'll always be able to somehow rationalize it in your mind. And if you're not able to do that yourself, there'll certainly be someone to come along and help you rationalize it in your mind and give you a few thoughts to deal with it to show that the Word of God is not teaching this point or whatever. And if people don't come along, I tell you this, the devil can come along. It's amazing the arguments that you can get in your mind against the doctrine or against something in the Bible that it just comes in out of the blue. And you wonder, well, where did that come from? How could I even think such a deep thing like that? It's the devil. Even as I illustrated how he came to Henry Cook in his dream on one occasion. 
when I mentioned it on the Lord's Day. So they have these arguments, and they're mentioned here in the text. Yeah, we, we, will, we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations. That's the first argument, conformity to the nations. And then, that our king may judge us. The royal office will now begin to take the, the office of judge. You will not need you anymore, Samuel. And we can get rid of those useless sons of yours. It'll be established in the monarchy. That'll be an excellent thing. This is a wonderful constitutional idea. We'll have the royal office. We'll have a monarchy. We'll have a monarch. And we'll give him the, the whole office of judge. And as well as that, we'll make him our military general, our military commander. And he'll go before us and he'll fight for us against all our enemies. Wow. They're going to get a military general, a commander, and a judge in one office? Of course, this is contrary to God. Because the Bible is clear about, about it all. The people never got the land by their possession. They didn't get it by their own sword. They didn't get it by their own arm. The right hand didn't save them. It wasn't their own arm that brought them the deliverance. It was the light of thy countenance. And the favor that you had unto us, O God, O God, our King. It was you, our King. Command deliverances for Jacob. You're our commander. You're our military in chief who gives us the victory. Psalm 44, it's all there. It was their God who was their king, their military commander, their savior, the deliverer. And Israel was to be totally unlike the nations. This was to stand out as different. They had God as their commander, their champion, their victor, their leader, their deliverer. And all the nations, they hadn't got that. They had poor wee kings. But Israel said, we be like the nations. I think this is the biggest argument probably for them. The first one that's given is probably the strongest as they rationalize this matter. And we can rationalize it in other ways, of course. But these are the ways that they, these people of God do here. Uh, and their strongest argument is, and this is a very big argument even in these modern times, uh, the world does it. The nations do it. It works in the world, you know. It works for the world. And we can't afford to be different. Because then, you know, we'll stand out like a sore thumb and uh, we'll get persecuted and we just can't afford to be di different in this matter. So we have to kind of blend in and do what the world does and do what the world finds successful and we'll find that successful in the church if we're just like the world. So this is very often an argument in the modern church. Like the nations. We can't afford to be different. That's a done thing now, you see, isn't it? Well, the lesson tonight is God's people have to obey the Lord. And they have to be unlike the nations. Not like them. It's basic. It's part of following the Lord. What the nations do to our Savior, they give him a cross. And they crucified him with criminals. Now he must have been unlike the nations. For them to do that to him. So the Lord does not want his people to be stubborn towards him. 
That's the lesson tonight. Maybe we are. Maybe we're just saying no. Can't do that. Don't want to do that. Nay. And the Lord's saying, you can't, you can't go there. You can't do that. Nay. I will. I will go there. I will do that. Never mind what the Lord says. Now, the Lord expects stubbornness in the wicked, in the ungodly, on those who do not know the Saviour. He, he expects that. I mean, stubbornness is a serious sin, and he expects to find it in the ungodly. Did, what, what did the Lord say? Stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And stubbornness was the sin of Pharaoh. Because you remember Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he refused to let the people go. And Moses was always saying, how long are you going to refuse Pharaoh? And he hardened his heart more and more. When are you going to stop refusing? How long will thou refuse to humble thyself before me, God said. Let my people go that they may serve me. But he, he refused. He was stubborn. But we expect that in the king of the nations. We expect that in Pharaoh. We inspect that in the ungodly who have not the word of God and who have not the Holy Spirit and who have not tasted the grace of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. We expect that, but we ought not to expect it in God's people who ought to be submissive and compliant to him. And where they lack the ability to do what God says are greatly humbled by it and ask for grace and hope for mercy. Happy is the man that feareth the Lord, but he that hardeneth his heart, he that's stubborn, he'll fall into mischief. So the stubbornness. Then secondly, the responses to this stubbornness. The response, first of all, of Samuel, and then of the Lord himself. The response of Samuel is described in verse 21. Samuel heard all the words of the people. And he rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. Oh, the ears of the Lord. How sweet they are to the child of God. The ears of the Lord. And Samuel, he gets all this stubbornness, this attitude. He faces this attitude. He faces this stubborn resistance. He knows what they're saying. Who does he think he is? And he listens to them all. He hears all the words. Imagine that. Just meekly listening to it. Didn't walk away. He heard all the words. You see, he had delivered his word. Now he listens to them. That's gentlemanly. He heard all the words. He perfectly listened. Even that stubborn attitude. Even that harsh no. He listened. Listen with a spirit of meekness. Listen with a heart of patience. Oh, I could just see him. He heard all the words. Do you see what the Holy Spirit says? He wasn't so disturbed in spirit that he missed some. You know, you get angry, you get disturbed in spirit, you can mutter something, you can say some things back, and you can miss what people say. But he listened. He heard all the words. He heard not one of their words dropped, just as not one of his words dropped. So none of their words dropped that they spoke to them. He heard them all. Every one of them. And that tells me that, that he said nothing. That he didn't interject. That he didn't scold. 
that he wasn't protesting anymore, that he wasn't talking anymore. He'd done his talking. He'd done his sermon. He'd delivered the word. He'd given his protest. And now he just listens. No doubt he's grieved. I grant that. Perhaps angry. Yes. Wanting to lash out? Maybe. But he was only called to do one thing. To deliver the word of God. That's all a minister's called to do. He can't change hearts. He can't change attitudes. He's not even going to try. If they don't listen to God. Samuel's saying they won't listen to me. So I'm not going to say anything else. I have this sermon. I'm delivering it. That's it. And he listens to the response. He doesn't presume to speak better than God. We can't speak better than the word of God. Don't you think you can make the word of God a bit better to sinners? A bit more acceptable to sinners? He he just delivers a word. And watches their response. That's all. That's all he's called to do, you know. We give God's word and we can't improve on it and we can't better it and we can't make it stick in the heart and we can't get it beyond the ears. That's all God's business. You just deliver the word and you watch the response and you take it in. That's all you can do. That's all Samuel does. Give people God's word, congregation. Don't argue and fight with them. Don't get into a slangy match with them. They don't have to answer to you. They have to answer to God. Remember that. So don't get too worked up. Or you'll be in the silent. If you get too worked up about people. But you do have to tell someone. Because you can't keep all that in yourself. So he rehearsed it all before the Lord. He told the Lord about it. It's not what it says there. He heard all the words of the people. And he rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. You know this is not about the Lord when he does this. This is about Samuel. This is private of course. He, he goes off a side. He tells the Lord about this in prayer. He does this, well, not because the Lord, the Lord was busy, you know, and he didn't hear what they were saying. The Lord heard very well what they were saying. Samuel knows that. Remember how Hannah sung, Don't be talking anymore exceedingly proudly. Let not arrogancy come out of your mouth. The Lord's a God of knowledge. By him actions are weighed. God has heard all this arrogance. He's seen all this stubbornness. He's weighing all these actions up. So, Samuel doesn't have to inform God. You know, the Lord had told him to give them the words. And Samuel gave all the words of the Lord unto them. And now he comes back again and he gives all their words unto the Lord. Not to inform God, but but as a faithful steward of God's word. You see, a prophet works two ways. From God to the people and from the people to God. He's delivering his own soul. I told them, Lord. I preached the truth of this text as it is according to the conscience. This is what they said. 
This is what they did. They refuse. It's just not in my power to change them, Lord. I brought the word to them, and I've brought them to thee. And that's all the preacher can do, you see. And it's because some preachers feel that they can do far more than that, that they end up nearly mental cases. There are things you just have to lay with the Lord. Casting all your cure upon him. For he cureth for you. This is what Samuel is doing. He's casting, he's an old man. I'm sure he's feeling it. A king to be your judge now. Casting all his cure upon the Lord. Rehearsing it in the ears of God. The ears of the Lord. God wants to know it from our lips. Even though he knows it. In his own divine omniscience. This is part of communion with God, congregation, part of intimacy with the Lord. The Lord delights in us telling him the matters and casting cure upon him. And so this is for the prophet's benefit. I mean, if he carried it on like this, he'd get angry, he'd get bitter, he'd get revengeful. Oh, what kind of a man would he turn into if he carried it all himself, all this spite? But no gets it into the ears of the Lord. Ah, that's the place of healing. That's where your mental battles are eased. And where the healing of the mind takes place, the ears of the Lord, his blessed ears. And so I don't care it anymore. He rehearsed it all in the ears of the Lord. Now the Lord's response does surprise us. Verse 22, and there's no doubt about what that response is. The Lord said to Samuel, hearken unto their voice and make them a king. What? All this stubbornness? We want a king? No, we'll have a king. And God says, listen to them. Hearken to them. In other words, you know, not in one ear out the other, but... Take it on board. Do it. Just do it. Now, we're not expecting that, are we? And maybe Samuel has said, Have I heard the Lord right? And so the Lord adds, Beyond shadow of a doubt, Make them a king, Samuel. Do it. Give them what they want. Cave into their stubbornness. Don't resist them anymore, Samuel. Just give in to them. Wow. You know, the Lord doesn't call his servants to bang their heads against a brick wall. The Lord calls no minister to do that. And no minister ought to do that. There's some stubbornness you just can't resist. You have to let people go their way. They'll find out the hard way. The Lord knows how to deal with it. Okay, they won't listen. Right, Samuel, this is what we do. Let them, let them have their way. Give them their king. Now, we must know that God does this. God is sovereign and he can do this. He's not afraid of stubbornness. He's not saying, oh, the stubbornness will wreck all my plans. What am I going to do now for the church? <laughs> the stubbornness is in his plans. 
But for this stubbornness, for them particularly, it will not be for their good. What does the Bible say? He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their soul. They had a nice dressed king now, but not so well dressed in here. They had a crown on the man that they insisted on against the will of God, but they have no crown of glory in here. They have no crown of joy in here. Leanness in here. Famine in here. The famine of the word of God. A soul without the word. Oh, they've got a nice king. I give them a king in mine anger, God said. And I took him away in my wrath. That's the whole history of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. In one word. I gave them a king in my wrath and I took him away in my anger. My people wouldn't listen to my voice. Israel would none of me. So I give them up to their own heart's lusts. Isn't that awful? That the Lord would give the church what it wants. And that there would be ministers prepared to allow the church to have what it wants. No matter about the word of God or the will of God. So then Samuel, he goes back to them. Go every man on to a city. Going to get your monarchy. But not today. Not today. We're going to see how they get their monarchy. But not today. God will let them learn the hard way. And so that's what Samuel and Kings is all about. 400 years of monarchy. 400 years of it. And then at the end, Babel. You probably wonder why there's so much about Saul. Why are there chapters and chapters and chapters about him? And then all these other bad kings that we read about. Chapters and chapters and chapters about all these other bad kings as well. Again and again. I mean, this is amazing. We have a couple of chapters for the creation of the whole cosmos. We have six or seven chapters for the whole world before the flood. We have a couple of verses about Enoch, the man who walked with God. And we have chapters and chapters and chapters about Saul. Why? To show God is right. That's why. And to show Israel, none of these are the true king. None of these are the king that I have intended for you. None of them. And I bring you to Babylon to show it to you. You have to wait for my king. I promise that he's coming. And you have to wait for him. And that king is Jesus Christ. And Samuel and the books of kings are telling us. We still have to wait for Messiah. God's true king upon his holy hill of Zion. And that one has now come. Our king. The Lord our king. And he's on the Mount Zion. The heavenly Jerusalem to which we have come. To the city of the living God. To innumerable company of the angels. To the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. To the throne of grace. And to our king who sits there upon 
That's our king. Let us meekly follow him. Let us never be stubborn to his holy commandments. Let us seek grace to be compliant and obedient unto him.